Hi, friends. Um, we're continuing in the season of Advent, and uh, as part of part of the season, we're engaging in some liturgical practice, um, things that root us, that connect us to the the greater body of Christians all over the world. Um, and and one of those practices is lighting a candle each week to remind us of the the first coming of Jesus uh, two thousand years ago, and uh, the light of the world that he brought to us, and uh, the hope we hold for his second coming. Um, so uh, now we'll light uh, a second candle um, and continue to hold that hope for ourselves. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. If you all want to stand with me now, for the reading of today's scripture uh, from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Well, there is a, uh, I think we all intuitively know this on a kind of visceral level. I don't know that we need a lot of data to, to make this point, um, but the data is fascinating. Um, there is a deep, deep, emotionally kind of regulative, comforting power to witness, to someone being deeply with you. Um, you know, there, there's this fascinating, this, a series of fascinating studies um, where if I understand correctly, they, they would use like little, a little pain applicator, like a little electric, sh- electric shock kind of a thing. And they would basically ask people to measure the amount of pain that they were experiencing from, from whatever was generating it. And without fail, the studies have shown that whenever there's a significant other in the room holding the person's hand, talking with them, engaged with them, the perception of that pain goes down. The self-reported experience of pain from the same stimuli goes down with the presence of someone with them in the midst of what they're going through. And ironically, if the relationship is unhealthy, if it, certainly if it's like a bad relationship, then that person can actually cause the pain to be increased, which is fascinating. Um, but a good, healthy, secure, well-attached relationship literally, quite literally, reduces our experience of pain and suffering in this world. Um, social research is showing. So, you know, that's, that's <laughs> I don't think we need to be told that, though. We all know instinctively the agony of feeling alone, the agony of feeling disconnected, the agony of feeling like no one is with us, especially when tragedy and suffering and difficulty hits. Um, 
And I think I, I say this all as backdrop to this idea, the, the, the central theme of the text that was just that Alexander just read for us, I think, is the idea of Jesus as Emmanuel, Jesus as God with us. And what we're going to learn in Matthew's Christmas story, which is what we learn uh, in, in their own way through each of the Gospels, is the idea that Jesus has come, in Jesus' coming, God has come to be with us presently, intimately, securely, closely with us in a way that, frankly, is like inconceivable to most of us and is, and is li- quite literally inconceivable to basically every other religious worldview. Um, and this is really good news, friends. This is really good news for reasons we are going to unpack. Let me pray for us one more time, and we're going to just jump into this. Lord, we put that word, Emmanuel, on like weird pieces of wood and hang it in our living rooms. (laughs) And that's fine. But we can so easily be inoculated to just what you're saying when you say these things to us in your word. The fact that the transcendent creator God of the universe has come to be with us in this way is such a radical thought that we hardly have a category for it. I pray, Lord, that this morning through, through your word here in Matthew 1, you would open up this idea afresh to us, to our minds, to our hearts, Lord, to our hopes. Plunge it deeply into our hearts, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each of the four gospel writers chose to highlight different elements of Jesus' story, including Jesus' birth. And we already talked last week about how, you know, Matthew just hits the ground running with the genealogy of Jesus, which to most of us, is probably like one of the least interesting things we could possibly read in the Bible. But with, if you have the eyes to see, there is so much beauty and complexity going on there. But the other gospel writers start their stories differently. John, for example, spoke of the coming of Jesus in almost this purely theological, philosophical, almost mystical terms. As he talks about the logos, the word who was with God and who was God coming into the world. He talks about Jesus as the true light coming into the world. And it's very, very beautiful, but it's mysterious. And you don't get the birth story. You, don't get, you just get this like almost philosophical understanding of what took place. Luke records some of the details around Jesus' birth. Uh, some of the like, iconic ones, including the journey to Bethlehem, the difficulty finding a room, the mention of the manger, and those sorts of things after a long you know, sort of section of kind of prophecies and fulfillments of those prophecies and the birth of John the Baptist leading up to the conception of Jesus and so forth. Mark just totally skips the birth narrative um, altogether and just skips basically straight to the ministry of John the Baptist and baptizing the adult Jesus and kicking off his public ministry. So Mark... Mark just couldn't care less about any of this stuff. No, of course not. It just didn't fit the, fit the purposes of the story he wanted to tell about Jesus. But Matthew, when Matthew gets past the genealogy and gets to the actual story of the birth, he tells it this way. And I think it's always important to ask, like, why did Matthew tell it this way? Why did he include these details and not those? How come he didn't include some of the things that Luke included and vice versa? That's key to what Matthew is trying to emphasize. So what is Matthew trying to emphasize with these eight verses? 
Well, in both the structure of the passage and the content, he is trying to get us to see again this almost unthinkably amazing reality that the Son of God became a human being. He laser focuses in on that and and a number of things. But first, I want to highlight this. To talk about that, you have to mention that Jesus is fully God. And so look at the way that Matthew highlights. He uses these two phrases to highlight this fact. He says, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20, as the angel declares, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. If you're at all familiar with Christian theology, this is probably old news to you. You're like, yeah, 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 the virgin birth, all this kind of stuff. But we just need to emphasize it. What the scriptures are claiming is that Jesus, this one Jesus, had a divine conception. The idea is that God himself is the Father. He has a human mother, but God himself is the Father. So there is some measure of difference and discontinuity between Jesus and the rest of humanity that is wholly unique to him. So we're going to talk in a second about Jesus as fully man, but Jesus is fully God. There is an aspect of Jesus that we do not share with him. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is divine. He alone has God, the Father, as his direct Father. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God, is what's being claimed here. And this is actually kind of a pillar of our faith. Um, It's a key part of understanding what happened here as sort of an incarnation and an enfleshment. And that word is really important, the incarnation, like carnate, flesh, like the putting on of flesh is what that term means. Because it's really easy to think of like the story of Jesus just begins right here. It begins right here in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 as he's, you know, conceived and um, suddenly appears on the scene in Mary's womb. But this language of incarnation, it ties us into this larger theological idea that this was not the beginning of Jesus' story. The rest of the New Testament unpacks again and again and again that the second person of the Trinity was there with God in the beginning. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. And the the second you start talking about the Trinity, there's landmines everywhere, and it's complicated, and it's complex, and it can feel like detached from, you know, good sense to be talking about it, but it's deeply important. It's deeply important. The birth, the conception and birth of Jesus was not the beginning of his story. He is the one who was there, who was with God, and who was God. We're told that all creation was made through this second person of the Trinity, this Son. So there is an eternal backstory to this Jesus, which is why we speak of it now as an incarnation, not the starting, but the eternal spiritual God Second person of the Trinity became enfleshed. He dropped from the, he broke, he dissolved the barrier between creator and creation. The creator stepped into his creation like a great painter painting himself into his masterpiece. Is this hard to believe for you? I think it's fair if it is. I think it's fair if it is. It is a pretty bizarre thing. And you, you, you know, you read this story and you have to immediately imagine yourself in these character's shoes discovering this. Like what, you know, what, what is Mary to think when she catches this news? We, we quickly discover what Joseph thinks in this passage. This is a wild thing to believe. But as wild as it is, I'd urge you not to allow yourself to be conditioned to think that the virgin birth is non-meaningful or important. 
Um, I remember back whenever uh, Rob Bell kind of came back came on the scene back in back in his early days with his book Velvet Elvis, and I remember there was just all this controversy around the statement he made that, you know, you say if the virgin birth was disproven, you know, would that really undermine our faith? Would we really have to rethink all the great things we think about Jesus? And he was kind of implying, no, it would be totally fine. Um, and I'm not saying that that's that in and of itself is necessarily indicative of the, the slippery slope that Rob Bell went down. Um, but I think the point is fair that this is what the Scriptures claim. This is what the Scriptures claim. And like many things that the Scriptures claim, we go, really? Really? That is wild. But at the end of the day, like this, the supernatural origin of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus, these are the only reasons, frankly, that this birth, this person, is worth caring about. Because if you want to strip away all the supernatural and all the divine from him, what are you left with? We talk about this quite a bit. You're left with an interesting moral teacher who had a, a you know, great influence on the world. But so what? So What? If Jesus is merely an interesting moral teacher, you have, you know, as much obligation to listen to him as you do anybody else. Take him or leave him. If you take the parts you like, reject the parts you don't like. But I think there's the reason that Jesus has outlived the Herods and he's outlived the Roman Empire and everything, every other world empire, and he has found a, a kingdom foothold in virtually every place on this planet since his arrival is because he isn't just a mere man. He isn't just a moral teacher. He isn't just an interesting guy. He is who Matthew 1 claims he is, the eternal Son of God come into human flesh in this moment. And that doesn't mean you, it's not a hard thing to wrestle with, but I just say, like, there's lots of hard things to wrestle with <laughs> in the Bible. Um, and at the end of the day, if you're willing to believe that there is a God, um, I think you've, you, you've jumped off the bridge you, you've made the leap. If God does exist, of course he could accomplish this feat. Of course he could accomplish this feat. To reject God on account of, of the virgin birth is a bit to, to, to beg the question. So, that's part of the claim. He is fully God. He's fully God, the eternal Son of God, who for the first time in human flesh this day but the story isn't just telling us that. That's one half of the equation. But the other half is that he's fully man. And we talked a lot about that last week in the genealogy, but, but we see this in a number of ways. First is this, this full identification with humanity. And so he's not just the transcendent God coming into human flesh, but let's emphasize that human flesh part for a second. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, subjected himself to a conception inside of a mother. Like, he has started where we all start, a conception. He has, start, he has begun at the very beginning of the human life cycle. He has not skipped. He has not skipped it. And you know, many of you know painfully, just how vulnerable, how vulnerable that is inside a human's womb. That person is inside their mother's womb. There is a complete vulnerability there. It is sensitive. It is fraught. And he went through the whole process of gestation. 
He went through delivery. He went through a delivery. He nursed. He went through an intimacy. Or intimacy. He went through its infancy. And on and on and on. He went through every stage of human development until he was, his life was cut short at the age of 33. But then he rose from the dead again. So now he's, he's quite old. Um, <laughs> but I just want you to think about that for a second. We talk about this stuff. Yes, yes, Jesus came, the incarnation. Yes, ba- little, sweet little baby Jesus there, born in the manger. But just think about what this is saying. He came in and fully, fully identified with us. He did it all. He lived a genuine human life from the point of conception onward. So there's the full identification, but just think as well of the, hum- the humility that's involved here. This Jesus came not just with, not with trumpets blaring, not in a royal hall, not, you know, you know in glory. But first of all, before even the, the humility of the manger, being laid in an animal's feeding trough as his first bed. Even before that, (laughs) he came microscopically. He came microscopically at the point of conception. He came not into, and on top of that, he came not into spotless appearances and like, oh, just a very, like, well, you know, good-looking family situation, but he came into family scandal. And that's part of what this, this story is highlighting for us. Like, I love the way that Matthew kind of captures, like, the emotional uh, reality of this. Like, we're told that Mary had been, be- had been betrothed to Jesus. With, if you know anything about betrothal in the ancient, ancient world, it's, it's, it's far more serious than we think of engagement as. It is, it, like, most likely a bride price that are, has already been paid by Joseph. He's financially invested in this marriage. The only way out of a betrothal is through a divorce. And so... They are, I mean, it is a serious thing. They are, they are practically married in our terms. Um, but they're waiting on the actual wedding date, and at which point they'll consummate the union. So in the midst of that, he discovers, I just love, I, I love, I love the way Matthew phrases it here. But before they came together, before they had sex, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It was just so casual. And I'm like, how did that conversation go? She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I imagine probably she broke the news to him. Like, hey, I've been given this vision from God, from an angel. I'm pregnant. And I just love the human drama of the story, how realistic it is. I mean, can you imagine hearing that? And Joseph, I mean, we get a good impression from Joseph in this story, but you, you just, as any of us would, you hear, I'm pregnant, but, 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 but. It's from God. <laughs> like, he reacts, I mean, like, you just have to imagine how heartbroken he is and how even her explanation, like, no, this is from God. It's just insult to injury. Like, I just imagine Joseph heartbroken. We've like, stop saying that. What are you talking about from God? We, like, what are you doing to me? What have you done? I thought we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. There's real human drama here. We're real human drama here. We are real human drama. I don't know what that sentence is. There is real human drama here. Um, So he resolved, it says, to divorce her quietly. He could have made a big to-do about this. He could have have endangered her life over this. I mean, horrifically in this culture. 
But he, he opted to, to get out of this relationship quietly until, until God intervenes again. God sends another angel via um, a vision to him in a dream and explains what's happening. Angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. And so Jesus agrees. I mean, Joseph agrees as the story goes on. But even that, we think, oh, nice tidy ending. They get to be like the happy family again. But no, think about the shame that's going to be involved as she's conceived this child well before their wedding date. As soon as people, as soon as people, you know, as soon as the baby's born, people are going to look at the, oh, wait, when did they get married? Oh, my goodness. And they're going to have to live probably their entire lives with some shame related to the assumption, not true, but the assumption that this baby was conceived out of wedlock. Isn't it fascinating that in these humble circumstances, with Jesus probably always being viewed by members of, commun- of his community as just a little bit suspect, There's just a little bit of shadiness. There's just a little bit of sort of um, dirtiness to Jesus. But those are the circumstances that he chose to be born into. It's not just that he's a real human. It's not just that he came in absolutely humble circumstances, you know, that there's no place for him to, to, to be laid except an animal's feeding trough. But even the circumstances relationally of this family are humble painful, messy, messy, at least according to appearances. And the emotion, certainly the emotional reality as they had to navigate the community's expectations for them. So, Mary and Joseph, in being obedient to God, are stepping into a life, in some ways, of humiliation. And we should just say, it is this way often with God. It is this way often with God. They did nothing to deserve humiliation. People were going to make undue assumptions about them, but nonetheless, for their faithfulness and participation in God's plan, there was going to be a cost. So he's fully God, and he's fully man. Full identification, full humanity, and even the taste of like family scandal in the midst of a community, judging their family. So that's what happened. That's what happened. I think those are the main threads we're meant to pick up. But then we have to ask the question, what did it mean? What did it mean? And I think the key to that question of what did it mean comes from this name, this title that's given, that's given to him. The title Emmanuel, which the text tells us just means God with us. And God has always been the God of the Bible, beginning in page one of the Bible, Genesis 1, he has always been a God who has pursued withness to his people. He's created humanity to be in his image, to be his image bearers, and he designed to share his ruling responsibility to delegate to them a seat at the table to actually rule and reign in his good creation. We have this picture in the early chapters of Genesis of the intimacy even after the fall, whenever God comes to find them, walking with them in the cool of the garden, and all this, like, God has always been, has desired closeness with people, with all people. So this isn't just a Jesus thing. This is a God, who God is fundamentally towards the people that he loves, always has been. But now, now, 
we could say God is with us in a radically deeper and newer way. I love, there's a couple passages in the book of Hebrews that I think capture this so well. The first is the first couple verses. The author of Hebrews says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the author of Hebrews is telling us, yes, God has, he's always cared to speak to his people. He's sent prophets, there's been the holy scriptures, numerous ways, visions and dreams and this and that, all kinds of ways by which God communicates. But now, now, there's something different. There's something totally different. He has now spoken in his son. He has come in his son. If you've ever had a question, what? because God is so abstract and different and distant and holy, and it's so hard to take these ideas we have about God in the scriptures and actually like, get a concrete picture of what that looks like, welcome Jesus. What is God like? Let's translate him. Let's transpose the God of the universe into human categories and tone, even a human body. This is how God has spoken now. What does that God look like who spoke to Moses in the burning bush if he just had some flesh? It's Jesus Christ incarnate. Hebrews also declares that Jesus is our true, final, and better high priest. I love this from chapter 4, verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see the logic there? He's talking about Jesus who can sympathize with us because he has become us. He's been tempted in every way. He did not seal himself off from temptation. He never gave in to that temptation. Jesus remained purely sinless. But I love the scholars who point out that that means he's tempted harder than we ever were. Because if the idea is that like we, we all face temptation, and at some point, more often than not, we give into it. So we've taken it so far, and then we just give into the temptation. The season of temptation is over. We have now just done the sin or whatever it is. Jesus never reached that ceiling where he just threw in the towel. He'd be tempted further and further and further and further, the agony of that. I'm compelled by that idea. Regardless, we're meant to see he was tempted genuinely, yet without sin. And his logic here, the, the author's logic here is that if that's who, that's who we have as our great high priest, if this is who God is, he's identified with us so much, even our human temptation, says then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Because we don't have a God who sits distantly and judgmentally, though he is the rightful judge of the universe, he doesn't sit back with his arms folded, kind of like, huh, humans you know, sort of scoffing at us. No, he knows what it is like to live in a human body in this world, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tempted with sin, to be betrayed, to be wounded, to be embarrassed, I assume, all these things. And our, lot, our response to that, the author of Hebrews tells us, is so approach him boldly. You don't have to be afraid of this God. 
This is, he is not a distant, cold smiter at heart. He is one who says, I have come to suffer alongside you to save you. So friends, let us then with confidence draw near to that throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that a beautiful promise? That promise makes sense because of Matthew 1, 18 through 25. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And I know of no other religious system on offer that makes this kind of claim, that God would do this because he loves you that much. He loves you that much. He became one of us, really and truly, because of love. God's spoken in many ways and at many times, but in these last days, He has spoken in His Son. Praise God. God is with us. So that's what happened. That's what it meant. Now let's talk about what it enabled get into the why. Well, he tells us, he tells us, the angel, as he's describing to, describing what's going to happen to Joseph, he says that this Jesus will bring about salvation from our sins. What's the why? It's because we, we were in need. We were in desperate need of salvation from our sins. Every person has played their part in the mess that is so self-evident in our world. There's goodness and there's beauty in our world, but there is also deep suffering, deep injustice, deep wrong in this world. And the Scriptures declare that ever since our first parents sinned, we are all participants in that sin and in that evil and in that injustice. Maybe in bigger ways than some, smaller ways than others, but nonetheless, we are participants. And so Jesus came to save us from our sins, first from the spiritual consequence of our sins. Paul declares the wages of sin is death. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's the simple logic of Jesus has to, God, if he's going to be good, has to at some point look injustice in the eye and say no more. It will not be allowed to continue. The judgment of God is scary. It makes us all uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. But we have to recognize a God who who is not capable of judgment and who does not draw a line is the same God who would have to look at the Holocaust and shrug. It's the same one. But he is not that God. He's the God who will always say there will be no more. I'm merciful, I'm long-suffering, but there does come an end. And one of those ends is death. It's the final limitation of sinful agents in the world. It's not arbitrary, but it's an act of loving preservation, if you can learn to see it that way. But Jesus, we're told, paid the wages. He paid the wages of sin. He died. He died. And in that death, he offers us the free gift of eternal life. So Jesus incarnated in human flesh. He went through all that he did. He experienced the the humiliating everything that he went through for the purpose of securing you and me forgiveness of our sins, that he doesn't count them against us. And more than that, relationship with him. That though we have turned our back, it's like we've, we've cut family ties, he has brought us fully back in. And if you want the picture, the emotional picture of that, go read the parable of the two sons again. 
the prodigal son running away, but when he does come back, the father is there to greet him with the most beautiful, beautifully magnificent open arms you could ever imagine. Just lavish forgiveness. And then eternal participation. Not just something, it's not something that just extends into the here and now, but that can never be taken from you. This forgiveness extends into eternity future where you have a not, a, a, an eternal seat at his table in his family with him and with one another. Just beautiful good news. Can you imagine an existence, the new heavens and the new earth with no sin, no evil, no injustice, only goodness and love and glory and peace, righteousness. That's what he offers. It's not just the spiritual kind of consequence of sin he deals with, it's also the practical slavery to our sins. The New Testament de- develops this idea, but he came to forgive us from our sins, but it's not just like, okay, now I'm, I'm declared. He actually wants to give us the resources to be people of his kingdom in the here and now. And that's to the benefit of you, because whether you know it or not, whatever sins we're harboring, whatever things God looks at in our lives and says, that's not for your flourishing. We can believe him or we cannot believe him, but if he is who he says he is, to, to reject what he says is to live in dis- discord with reality. So to, to repent of our sins, to have the strength to, the supernatural empowerment to by his spirit is for your good and for your benefit and for your blessing, painful as it is at times. But it's not just that. It's also to the benefit of others. Because if you become a person transformed by the love of God into a person filled increasingly with his spirit, a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, do you know what that is for your neighbor? That's good news for your neighbor. He's in the business of transforming us, and it's in fits and starts, and it's up and down, and it's messy in this life. Very few of us have a solid up and to the right graph of sanctification, if, if you will. Um, but nonetheless, his desire is to, in the here and now, the church he's building to be an actual representation of who he is, how he loves, what flourishing looks like in his world. And as you yield more of yourself to him, even if your neighbors don't see it that way, that is good news for them. It is. So he saves us from the, you know, the spiritual consequence of our sin, but also the practical slavery to sin that actually makes a difference in the here and now. It makes a difference for your children, friends, as you yield yourself to this Jesus. It makes a difference for your friends as you yield yourself to Jesus. It makes, it makes a difference for your spouse. It makes a difference for your coworkers. It makes a difference for the neighbors sleeping on the street not far from your apartment. It makes a difference for everyone. Guys, it makes a difference for your enemies if you become this kind of person. You become a vehicle for his grace towards others. It's interesting that the angel says, we're going to name him Jesus. Jesus, which just means Yahweh is salvation. Do you know that? This is at the heart of what he came to do. It's not the only thing, but it's at the center of the cluster things he came to do. So, when we think about Christmas, think about the manger, we think about the shepherds, we think about the wise men, don't let it become stale. This, this thing we're talking about, 
This was the greatest act of cosmic humility by which God humbled himself to enter our mess genuinely, fully, truly, not to condemn you, but to save you, not to push you away, but to draw you close, not because he hates you, because he loves you. He came to be with us. He came to be with you. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And you know what? He is coming again. He is coming again. Just as they were waiting for the Messiah to come, that they didn't know would also be this Son of God, God with us in human flesh, we are waiting as well. Because Jesus has come, but we're told he has ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he sent his Holy Spirit to be with us, his Holy Spirit who helps us and aids us, who is our great helper and comforter. But we are still waiting for him to come and put all things right. We still wait with patient longing for Emmanuel, for God with us in an even better and deeper way where we will see him, the scriptures declare, face to face, where he will reign from the throne of David, and it will be good news for the whole earth, we are told, for everyone who will bend the knee to this king, who will receive the love of this Savior. It is the greatest, most beautiful news imaginable. So we're about to sing. We're going to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I think it might be the next song. I should have confirmed that. It is. And we sing that song today, friends, looking back, yes, stepping into that ancient longing of the people waiting for the Savior to come, but also we sing it waiting for this Emmanuel to come again where he's going to put all things right, wipe every tear, bring about his perfect goodness, his perfect flourishing, his perfect justice. So, if you're a Christian, today, I just, I just pray and I hope, and if you feel stuck and none of this is registering and you're like, I don't get, just pray. Before you sing a word, just pray to him. Say, Lord, help me to experience this for the first time. Help me experience this with a richness that I've been, I've been lacking. Help this not just to be rote and habit and whatever, but may this longing that's captured in these words, you know, come, come, Emmanuel, it's so interesting because the lyrics are so joyful, but it's got this melancholy to it, doesn't it? It's a beautiful, it's perfect. It's a perfect Advent song because it is a celebration, but it's also the longing and the yearning. You're in the waiting that God, you know, is going to fulfill. It's hard, and there's agony in it too. If you're not a believer, I just want to say very explicitly what Christianity claims is that this God loves you, and he wants you to become the recipient of all that he's done for you. He wants you to come to him and experience him as Emmanuel, as God come to be with you, as the one who will forgive every sin, the one who has, who has accomplished everything necessary to bring you far, from far away in closer than you could possibly imagine. Paul says, if anyone believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, he will be saved. And that's it. You believe and then you make a confession. Jesus is Lord. And you step into this story and you can step into this community full of people who would love to help you take the first steps on that journey of following him. He'll be with you. 
via His Spirit, and you get to join the club of us who are waiting for Him to come and be with us in full when He returns. Amen? Let's pray.